Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation today with Emily Thoreau Threat. Emily has a vast array of stories and lessons surrounding death and dying and the aftermath, and this began when she was a child. Hearing her account of her first ambulance call at the age of 14 is so very profound, and her experiences just continue to unfold surrounding death. Emily's conversation is a perfect example of how listening to another's experience is so very enlightening, and it shares information that we can call upon when death visits us. Of course, we can learn from Emily's life experience and expertise also by reading her newly published book, Living and Loving Your Way Through Grief. As you will hear in this episode, Life has been her greatest teacher. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased you accepted the call and just spoke to you to come on today. Basically, the way we roll around here is um, people come on and you know, the Death Dialogues Project is all about the fact that we learn from each other's stories. So we would love it if you would share with me and our listeners your experience with loss and what it's done to you. And and um, we'll just take it from there. I'll pop in and chat with you along the way. Okay, that sounds good. Um, I have or had lots of loss in my life. Uh, and each each time it's been a little bit different and things have uh, happened differently. I uh, started out very young. My dad, back in the olden days, uh, traded our house for an ambulance company, and I was 13. And I, it, my mom and dad and I ran that. And in those days, you only had to have a, an advanced first aid card to go on ambulance calls and you had to be 14 years old. So since my dad was a first aid trainer in town um, on my first 14th birthday, I went on my first ambulance call and on my very first call, I had a child die in my arms. So uh, (laughs) it's, it started from, from very, very young and it, it led me to a lot of questions, and I examined things throughout my life of, of how, how to deal with things, how to protect myself, how to, how to go on. And I later was married to an, a marvelous man named uh, Jacques Thoreau. He was a bioethicist, and his specialty was um, studying death and dying. So I was married to him for 22 years, and it was really fascinating how um, uh, how much I learned about grief and grieving and death and dying. He facilitated a, a group called Brief Persons Association, and I helped him with that. And we had... Uh, how international people would would come to speak in the community where we we lived, and frequently they would stay with us the, who were experts in grief. And he he studied. Uh, he was on his uh, 
sabbatical in England and met with Dr. Richard Lamerton, who was the the main assistant to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she came, uh, before I met him, she came and uh, spoke uh, with him at a, at a group where he was. So I've, I've been very involved in death and dying issues for a long time, not really relating them to me. <laughs> and while I was married to Jacques, my father died suddenly. And my mother, after staying with us, living with us for a while, um, died in, from a brain tumor. It took her, her a while, so the experiences were totally different. Then Jacques became very ill, and I ended up taking care of him for two years through his uh, uh, journey through heart failure and two heart surgeries and uh, then diabetes and then dialysis and, and the whole works. So we did that. And at that time, I owned a, a live theater and school of arts, and I was able to donate that whole thing into the foundation that went along with it so that I could stay home for him for his last two years. And when he died, it was like, okay, <laughs> now what do I do? Uh, I no longer have my business. Uh, I no longer have Jacques to take care of, and I really wasn't sure what my next move was. And before I had the the theater, I had taught writing at the university for years. And the university called and said, "Uh, we would love to have you come back and work for us. So I ended up going back to teaching writing. And a couple of years after I was doing that, I, I ran into one of my friends at school, and she said, so are you dating yet? I said, uh, no. <laughs> and she said, well, it's, it's time. You, you are not the kind of person who needs to go through life alone. I said, I, you know, I just, I can't even think about dating. I don't have any idea how I would start, who I would meet. You know, Jacques would be a really hard act to follow. And, but she went on and on and on about it. And every time I saw her, so she, she says, so have you gone on match.com? And I kept saying, no. <laughs> Finally, she said it enough times to me. I thought, you know, I'm just going to go on it so that next time she says it, I'll say I tried it and it didn't work. So (laughs) I went on on a Thursday. Um, The next day, uh, Ron uh, approached me through Match.com. We ended up actually going out to dinner on Sunday after that Thursday, which you're not supposed to do that when you're you're doing online dating. You're supposed to maybe meet for coffee first so you can get out easily. Mm-hmm. But I, I knew from the moment I met him that he was the person I was supposed to be with. And so we had a, a wonderful relationship. He was the exact opposite of Jacques, but he he was just wonderful. I had I had written down before I went on match.com, I thought, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I have to have some idea of who I'm looking for. So I wrote this big long list of all these things that you know I really felt like he had to have those qualities. And when I read his um bio on match, he ticked off every one of them and some of them were better. Uh for instance, uh I have a master's degree and Jacques had two master's degrees. And I thought, I'm, I know I need to be with somebody who's educated. Not that I, I have any prejudice against different education, but I just knew that for me, that would be a good fit. Well, mm-hmm. Ron had three master's degrees. 
<laughs> so wow. it was just everything on the list he clicked off. Um, <clears throat> I didn't realize, however, at the time, are the two things that weren't on the list is he was a minister, which was uh, uh, the opposite of who I thought I'd ever be with, but he was a, a kind of a, a new thought, ancient wisdom minister uh, along the lines of Agape International Spiritual Center. And he also was black and I am uh, not. I'm uh, white with mostly Native American. So I was, that surprised me too, but not enough to not be with him because we just clicked beautifully and we had a, a lovely relationship it took me four years before i'd say yes to actually marrying him because unlike when you get divorced and your marriage is over when your spouse dies to me it didn't feel like i was unmarried i know vows say till death do you part but i just i never felt like i got unmarried so it was kind of mm. a challenge to uh, actually enter another marriage. But finally, it was the point where we just knew that we it was time for us to be married. So I was married to him for six years before he died. Mm. And ironically, uh, I was with him for the last couple of years, uh, not doing the same depth of care that I did with Jacques, but really needing to be with him all the time <clears throat> during those last two years. And he also died of congestive heart failure and renal failure, just like Jacques had, which was kind of interesting. Um, and with Ron, he had many years ago lived on Maui before I met him and he loved it there. And he, we came here on our honeymoon and we kept coming back to visit because even though it had been many years, he still had friends. I, I never felt like I came to Maui as a tourist. I always came as a, a friend of people, uh, lots of people who were here. And it felt mm -hmm. so good <clears throat> when he realized that uh, his health was failing. He said, you know, I really would like to spend the rest of my life in Maui. And I said, okay. I'm a California girl and never thought I'd live anyplace else. But when it came down to that, I just said yes. And, and we moved here uh, two years before he died. And it was a marvelous move for me. It was just great. But during those two years, I spent most of my time with him. And I didn't get really um, acculturated, I would say, to the island because I, I wasn't out much. You know, when we went out, it was to go to the doctor or go to the hospital or go to buy groceries. I, we uh, didn't do the usual kind of enjoying Maui kinds of things. And I did meet people. I had the opportunity to meet people, uh, mostly because a, a friend of ours moved over to uh, Maui at the same time we moved. <coughs> Excuse me. She. Um, had been helping us pack and she said and, and uh, when we were on the mainland she goes you know I think I'd like to live on Maui and I said well we bought a house that has a cottage on the property it's a two-bedroom one-bathroom uh, house and it's it's lovely and I would love to have you come live there and so she she went out to help 
Ron Pack in his office and she said the same thing to him and he gave her the exact same answer. So <laughs> she moved over here at the same time we did. And she's the kind of person who's a friend to everybody and she meets people and gets acquainted very easily. So even though we were a little bit socially isolated in our house, she was bringing people to us and we were meeting people. And I was just in love with the people that we met here. Everybody was kind and wonderful and giving and loving and it was just great and in uh, Maui there's a word for family and that's ohana and I feel like or I know that we developed our own like adopted ohana uh, in those couple of years and when Ron actually transitioned it actually was a pretty amazing beautiful process and after he was gone, I thought, okay, now what do I do? I'm in a place in the middle of the ocean, actually the most remote place in the world on a small island uh, that is a county. That's that's how big. Actually, there's two other islands, three three islands joined together to make one county. So that's, that's how big it is. Um, and I knew the people that I had met uh, through my friend Sheena. But I didn't know much about the island. I didn't know where to go, what to do. You know, I was kind of starting from scratch. And I was really lost without Ron. The the devastation of being so deeply in love with two husbands and not having either one of them anymore with me, I just, I didn't know what to do. So what came to me is what I needed to do was to uh, figure out what my next step was supposed to be. And I had continued, even though I had retired from my teaching job at the university on the mainland, they continued to hire me to teach online because uh, I guess not many people like to teach the class, the writing class that I teach, and I absolutely love to teach it. So they've hired me back consistently since I retired to teach uh just about every semester I've got a class or two, which is nice, but that's not the same as the personal interaction that I would like to have on the island. Mm. So I just I would I just kind of didn't know what to do next. So I meditated on it a lot. I, and my whole focus was what am I supposed to do? What how am I supposed to spend the rest of my life? And I started writing a lot, being a writer. I've written college textbooks, and I've taught writing for many years, and writing just came so naturally to me that I just kept writing and exploring my thoughts and ideas and where I was supposed to go and everything. And then one of uh, Ron's really close friends, he he used to call Ron dad. He was young enough to be his son, and um, he actually was a, a, he and his family were neighbors of us where we lived on the mainland. And we we were friends, really good friends. They'd come to visit us a couple times on Maui. And um, one day he just died, just out of the blue. And I thought, oh, his wife, who wasn't that old uh, and had two, two daughters, one in her last year of high school and one in her second year of college, I thought she's she's not going to have any idea what to do at this moment because it's so totally unexpected. So I turned to my writing and I 
I found out on a Saturday morning. Uh, he he died the night before on his way home from work. And I wrote her this big, long letter of, uh, I know you've never thought you'd be in this position, but these are the things that you need to know now. And I knew that if I put it in the mail, sometimes mail from Hawaii takes a long time to get to the mainland. It's not supposed to, but sometimes it did. And I wanted her to have it like right then. And I thought I could email it to her. But I, I again, I thought if I did, chances of her checking her email when she was in the state she was in were not real high. So I emailed the letter to a friend of mine who also knew her and just lived a couple blocks from her and asked her to please print it off and hand carry it to her so she could have it that day. And she later uh, contacted me and she said, you just don't know how much good that that letter did for me. I really, really appreciated it. And I actually read it to each of my daughters individually when I realized they needed to hear the same things too. And that that touched me deeply. And I thought, I've got to do more. There's got to be something else I can do. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to I, I remembered back when a friend of mine had had breast cancer and Ron said, you really need to stay in close touch with her because she didn't live in the, where we lived. And so I started writing her every week and I thought, I'm going to I'm just going to write to my friend every week. And that turned into, well, I think I'll make some pretty cards to send her every week instead, because I love to take pictures on the island and I had made quite a collection of them by then. So I. uh created 50 different or 52 for a year different pictures and then I thought what am I going to write in them and I sat down and it took me two days and I wrote the the contents for 52 cards in two days that that were kind of the progression of this is what you need to know now throughout the the first year and I mailed them to her every day for uh that first year and it did me a lot of good to write those cards. And she later told, she's told me several times that they, they meant the world to her, that it really helped. And I had told my step-granddaughter, Jacques' granddaughter, about doing this. And when her dad, my stepson's best friend, just died like my Ron's friend had died suddenly at a, at a young age. She contacted me and she said, could you print those cards for me to send to his wife? Because they'd been friends growing up their, their whole lives. And so I did. And as I was printing off the cards, I was listening to a podcast, ironically. And the woman in the podcast was just great. I really liked her. And I she had written a book, so I decided I'd, I would buy the book. And I went to her website after I listened to the podcast. And at the bottom of the website, it said, if you have an idea for a book, um, let me know because I'm also a, a book agent. And it dawned on me right when I read that sentence, I have an outline for a book written mm. from the content of the cards. And so uh, I contacted her. She became my agent. Um, I wrote the book. It's in the process of being published now. And in the process of getting ready for all that, I was. she encouraged me to create a social media platform and to see what I could do to help people in, in other ways that would support me and support the book. So the first thing I did, there was something in Maui that they have in different places in the country called the Death Cafe. 
That, mm-hmm. that sounds gross, but <laughs> I, I'd never heard of such a thing before. But a friend of mine invited me to go to it with her, and I did. And I really liked the people there. It was it was a really wonderful meeting. Met a couple people that I really connected with, and it was just talking about all things death and from any perspective, and it, it was really cool. And after that meeting, I kept trying to go back and either it had get canceled or nobody would show up or something. So I contacted the, the man who was facilitating the meetings, and he was just really, really busy with the, the work that he does with the foundation called Doorway into Light here on Maui. And I said, would you like me to take the Death Cafe over for you? And he said, oh, that would be great. It's yours. So I did that, and as I was doing that, I noticed a lot of people had that reaction like I did of Death Cafe, you know. So <clears throat> I had a few people coming, but not the kind of uh, group that I wanted to develop it into. So I decided to um, try something else in addition to that, and we uh, I created a writing through grief class, or not class, but group and it wasn't anything there was a charge for or anything but i invited people from death cafe and anybody who else was interested to come and they would come to my house and we developed a really nice group of people that uh, some came every time some came once and came back again a few months later uh but we we got to be our own little ohana with that group and did a lot with the grief writing and the other group the death cafe group evolved more into a uh, reclaiming your joy after loss group and that appealed to more people and so I had two different groups meeting that were going really well until we had to not go visit each other anymore so I took those two groups onto Facebook and I have two private Facebook groups now where, where people ask to join and if they're qualified they can join and just qualified means they agree to follow the rules in the group and that they have lost someone and that uh, they'll essentially be nice in the group. So I've got Reclaiming Your Joy After Loss on Facebook, and I have Writing Through Grief with Emily on Facebook. And we've continued the work, even though we haven't been able to meet in person. So I, I really enjoy doing that, though I'm really craving <laughs> being able to get back with those groups. So we had such a a nice interpersonal relationship. Of course, now that they're on Facebook, I've got people from all over in the group instead of just people on Maui. But uh, I do stay in touch with our, our Maui people still. And I, I really have discovered, um, discovered a, a deep joy, a sense of satisfaction and being able to help people through this process and in in doing so my focus always is on positivity and on uh, feeling good and smiling and uh, making things instead of being in those those deep dark places that you can go in grief knowing that you can get you can deal with that and you can have love and joy in your life too and so that's love and joy in your life, I guess, is my, my main focus. The, the name of my book that is in the process of being published, but of course has been delayed because of the whole uh, pandemic thing. But the name of the book is Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. So uh, that's my focus and that's my story, kind of long-winded, but <laughs> that's it. Oh, yeah. 
No, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I guess I have a couple of questions for you, if that's okay. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I didn't want to interrupt, but I'm sorry. You have to take me back to when you're 14. Okay. And on the, and on, and on the first day. I mean, tell me how a, that 14-year-old child handled that situation with the child dying in your arms. Well, it was, it was really something. Um, to take it back a little bit, uh, we, when my dad traded our house for the company, we had to move into this small house that was on the same property that the company was on. And that was in, in March. And in the week that we moved into that house, my grandmother, who I was very close to because my, uh, I, I stayed with her much of my growing up time, uh, as she died suddenly, no warning. And my uh, niece, my sister's uh, daughter, was born the same week, and she lived in another town, and mom needed to leave to go help her out. So here my dad and I are in this uh, different house trying to really start this ambulance company. It was it was a couple of years old, but it was it was failing miserably in a mess. And so we were just figuring out how to do everything together. And I, I really, even though I was going to school, I was full on helping mom and dad with the business. We dispatched ambulances 24 hours a day. And our dinner table conversation was who died and how gory it was. And <laughs> all the all the things that you just kind of have to talk about when you're going through those experiences so uh when i was i was 14 i was i was on my birthday in in the office uh working because we would i would work in the office accepting bill payments and cleaning ambulances and we we didn't even have a laundry service at the time we had to, to wash all the stuff in our washing machine and hang it out on the line to dry so I, that was that was a whole nother story, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. we got this call for an accident that was way out in the country. And I lived in a very small town in, in Central California that that had a lot of country around it that we were responsible for with the ambulance. And people, there weren't stop signs at intersections there because there were rarely two people close to an intersection at the same time. And at this particular intersection, there were two vehicles uh, carrying two families that uh, collided head on. And there were multiple uh, casualties. And we actually sent two ambulances out there. And in those days, there were you could put one gurney in the ambulance, like you see ambulances nowadays, you see one person on a gurney in the back of the ambulance. But there was also like a, a bench along the other side of the, the ambulance that you could put a flat on with a person on it. And there were also hooks up in the top of the ceiling of the back part of the ambulance where you could hang two more patients on two more flats. So you'd have four patients lying down in the back of an ambulance that's smaller than the ambulances that you see today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was actually the third person. There was a driver and an attendant, and I was the second attendant. And because all those people were in the back, the driver and the attendant sat in the front, and I was wedged in this little tiny spot in the back uh, that was uh, kind of wedged between all these people holding this uh, very 
young child, I, I would say maybe nine, between nine months and a year holding the, the child in my arm arms and the, the uh, child was just covered in blood and obviously severely injured and everybody else was severely injured, uh, not even being able to talk to each other. And uh, we took the ambulance red light and siren to the hospital. And back in those days, uh, they didn't have an emergency room at the hospital. What you would do is drive up to the back door of the hospital because there was no radio contact in those days. And you would ring the doorbell to the hospital, hope somebody came and answered. And once somebody came and answered, they would have to find help in the hospital to help us get all the people in. They, they had one examination room, so all the other people had to, you know, they had to find places to lay them down. And then they'd start calling doctors to see if somebody could come in to take care of them. So through this whole process, I'm standing there holding this this infant. And it just, I was realizing that the infant wasn't breathing anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I was also realizing that... Uh, I probably would not have been able to be saved anyway uh, because of the extent of the, the injuries. And so I just held the, the baby till finally everybody else was taken care of and somebody finally came and took it from me. And uh, I thought, well, I guess this is my life now. This is This is what I have to deal with. And I dealt with a lot of deaths. Because back in those days, there were no seatbelt laws. Uh, People were thrown out of vehicles all the time. Uh, I just saw saw unimaginable things when on on calls that were just incredible. Uh, And it just gave me a whole different perspective on on life and death. And, And one of the main things that came to me was the importance of realizing that I'm I'm alive right now and I better make the best of it because who knows when I'm not going to be anymore. Mm-hmm. And I I really kind of started living that way from then on. I would do my best to help other people however I could, but I also tried to take good care of me in the process. I think sometimes when we go through our lives, we don't often actually, um, we, we can't objectively look back and see just the immensity of things because it was just the way it was. It was our lives. And um, I just have to tell you, what you're describing, the work that you were doing as a 14-year-old and throughout your teenage years, you know, that's unusual to hear. And it's profound um, that in that developmental stage of your life, you are immersed in trauma. Um, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing to me. It, it really was. Uh, it, I, I think it, it did a great deal of uh, leading to the person that, that I've, I've been throughout my life, taught me a lot about personal responsibility, about reliability, about dependability, about um, knowing what you're doing, uh, learning all you can, uh, and about just being being a good steward to society, actually. 
And just so many people, especially at that age, wouldn't have the ability, you know, whatever we want to, we could name a list of what those abilities are, but, you know, wouldn't have the stamina, wouldn't have the, the, um, the ability to stay in a working space during those sorts of traumas at that age. So that really did, there was a fortitude there. Um, it sounds like even at that age, it's, yeah, it's pretty mind blowing. Well, you know, it, you you mentioned it earlier that we don't often think about things as as they're happening. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in in my case, uh, you just everybody just did what they had to do. If we didn't run that company, not only would we not have a place to live or food to eat, we we came into that company because my my dad had been my dad was a veteran of. Uh, World War II. And before that, he came out uh, from Oklahoma uh, during the Dust Bowl migration. And he was uh, very much, you do what you have to do because you have to do it to eat and to live and to take care of those that you love. And so that was kind of the philosophy that I was brought up with. And then when after the, the war was over, my dad got very involved in the Veterans of Foreign Wars and became the state commander of the Department of California, which was kind of a big deal. And that's that's why I was with my grandmother so much, because mom and dad were traveling all the time to do that. And he had been working in this small town in a hardware store before that happened. And the owner was so proud of him for doing all the service to the veterans that he said, go do it. And and when you're you're finished with your obligation there, come back here. There will always be a job for you. Well, while dad was in office, uh, the owner of the hardware store died. And when dad came back for his job, his son, who had taken over the store, said, yeah, I know my dad said that, but we don't really have a position for you now. And here's my dad with a third grade education, uh, Dust Bowl migrant, uh, even though he had been in this incredibly powerful, wonderful service position, uh, doing things like entertaining the Vice President Johnson for lunch, you know, when he was in Washington, D.C., testifying before a Senate subcommittee. You know, he, he was a big deal to come back to no job possibilities. So he, one of the things that he, he got to do was um, bookkeeping for this ambulance company that had just started. And now, granted, he had a third grade education. He didn't have any bookkeeping training, but he was self-taught and he, he did really well with it. And he went to the owner of the company and said, you are so far in the red. Now, the company was at that time about two and a half years old. He said, you're so far in the red and you're so mismanaging everything. I don't know how you can keep your doors doors open. And the guy said, um, so you want to buy the company? <laughs> and Dad said, you know, I have no money. And he said, well, what do you have? And the only thing he had was our home. So we traded our home for that company. And um, the company now is 60 years old and my sister and I still own it. Oh my goodness. And it's it's because when that fell into our laps essentially, we 
we had no choice but to make the very best of it. We didn't think about, oh, poor me, I have to wake up in the middle of the night when the phone rings because somebody needs to go to the hospital. You know, we never thought that. We, we always, we were grateful for the opportunity to, to help somebody get to the hospital when they needed to, to go in the mm-hmm. middle of the night. And not only that, but a, a couple of years after my uh, we bought the company, my dad uh, had a health condition where he ended up in the veterans hospital, which was an hour and a half away from where we lived. Uh, and he was in a coma for a month. And so my mom was torn because it literally was my mom and dad and I running this company. We had people to go on calls that we would call in to, to go on the calls. But as far as running the company, it was us. And my mom wanted to be with him. So I ended up about 14 and 15 years old during that time running the company with my parents out of town and me trying to go to school at the same time and getting somebody to just cover the, the phones while I was in, in high school. Uh, while we didn't know whether my dad was coming home from the hospital or not, and it didn't look like he was going to. He lost 100 pounds in the 30 days that he was in the coma. and. He he eventually did come home and we did okay, but I I really learned the company inside and out and we never questioned it. You just do what you have to do. And I we were grateful for something that could provide service to others, but also put a roof over our head and feed us. Mm. It's yeah, it's mind blowing. It's um that's a book in there, the fourteen year old that um, becomes a, uh, yeah, whatever they call it, called them responders or I know they didn't have all the initials back then. Yeah, they, but, we, did, we didn't back then. <laughs> we didn't yeah. have EMTs or anything. You just were first aid people and ambulance drivers. You had to be 21 right. to get a, a, an ambulance driver's certificate, but you could, you could be the person who took care of the patients from 14 on. Fascinating. I also, I just wondered if you would circle back around and if this is uncomfortable, please say so. But when somebody talks about a death being a beautiful process, like you mentioned with Ron, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, my curiosity peaks and for purposes of our sharing the stories, since so many people are unable to see death as a beautiful process, I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little Sure, I I would be happy to. Uh, when Ron got to the Ron, because Jacques had been on dialysis, Ron and I had talked a lot about um, Jacques and the process of him being on dialysis, and uh, he eventually, I think, what happened was his with Jacques was his kidney and his heart stopped all at the same time. Uh, that death experience was so different. We had been, he, he was a writer. He, he wrote a book called Ethics, Theory, and Practice that he wrote it in the mid-70s and it's still in publication today. Actually, it's just in uh, digital publication now, used at universities all over the world. It's been translated into many languages. And he was in the process of doing a revision of that textbook that was it was a little late because it was very hard for him to work on it, but he would, he had a hard time typing because of the neuropathy in his fingers, but he, he, he would type and we had a 
the computer set up so that it would track all the changes. So he'd type in the daytime and in the evenings, I'd go back in and fix all the the typos because the, the content was there. He just, the typos were, were bad, like 13 E's in one word or, or whatever. So we, we worked on that and we finished it one Friday morning and we were so excited. And it was the, the first time I think we were able to submit the, the text electronically to the publisher. So we submitted it and we called his editor and we like celebrated. It was, we were so excited that it finally got done and it, it was just really, really neat. And then I, I fixed him lunch because he was supposed to go to dialysis. And when he was eating his lunch, he said to me, am I going to get better? And I, in my mind, I thought, for Pete's sake, <laughs> you're the expert on death and dying. And you've mm. been this sick for this long. But I, I didn't say anything like that out loud, out loud. I said, no. And I hated to say that. But I also knew I had to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And so he went back out. We had one of those um, kinds of recliner chairs that sits you down and lifts you up because he he didn't really have the strength to to be doing that. And so I I put him in the chair and uh, he was going to rest a a few minutes before we went to dialysis. And he had this problem. He was losing kind of control of his body and he kept kind of starting to fall out of the left side of his chair. And so I kept, I'd I'd have to watch him and keep him propped up and put pillows and stuff. And he was always apologizing for it. He was really embarrassed by it. And so I said, you know, and I joked with him as I said, as long as you're leaning to the left, you're okay. (laughs) I won't worry about you. But if you start leaning to the right, I'm going to be concerned. So this day he was, he was having this problem and he was leaning to the right. Uh, he's starting to fall out of the other side of the chair. And I said, do I need to worry? And he said, we just laughed about it. It, it was funny. And mm. we got him up in his walker and walked him out to, to the car. And I had the car door open and he, he sat down uh, facing me. The, the door was open and I, he, he sat down before he would uh, pull his legs into the, the car, just on the edge of the seat there. And he looked up to me and he said, uh, a word I probably uh, shouldn't say on the recording, but oh, something. And mm-hmm. he was gone. Just like that. Mm. He was just gone. And I knew he was gone. There was no question to me that he was gone. But I went over to try to see what I could do. And I was trying to get him it, because he was sitting on the edge of the seat. I didn't want him to fall out. And I was kind of trying to get him back in. And he was he was big because the dialysis just fills you up. It's like blowing you up with a, a balloon before it's time for you to get dialyzed and get the fluid off. And so he was he was really, really awkward. And, and trying to do that, he fell down between the seat and the dashboard into a position where I couldn't, couldn't do anything. I couldn't get him in. I couldn't get him out. I couldn't do CPR, even though I knew that he didn't want to be resuscitated. And I didn't know what to do. So I called 911. I I said, I know he doesn't want to be resuscitated, but he's hanging out of the car and stuck in there. And, you know, so they they sent the the uh, fire trucks and they had a really hard time getting him out. And by the time they got him out, they were able to indicate that he had not not a regular pulse, but the where your heart's just kind of fluttering fibrillation. Uh, 
And so they decided that they would do CPR on him on the driveway, on the concrete. Oh, don't do that. But they did and took him to the hospital. And a friend of mine came and picked me up and and took me to the hospital. And we we waited there before they finally decided that they would declare that he was gone. And it it was so traumatic. Mm-hmm. So, and I had talked to Ron about that a lot too, and talked about the process of dialysis and all the things that happened. He, he said, I want you to know if the time ever comes that I have to go on dialysis, I don't want to go on dialysis. And I said, I respect your decision. Uh, you know, if that's, that's what you want, that's fine. Um, you know, we, we need it in writing and we had durable power of attorney for healthcare, which everybody has to have. You just, if you don't have one now, go get one today. But he had mm-hmm. all that, that written down. We had a clear understanding between us. And he had been to his um, nephrologist because he was having some kidney issues. So they were following it. And the nephrologist said, you're in good shape. I don't need to see you for a while because you're doing so well. And then the, the nephrologist was taking his wife to Australia for uh, vacation. and he checked on Ron's lab work from the airport just as he was getting onto the plane. And he called his nurse and said, you've got to get uh, Ron into the, the emergency room right now. He's got to go on dialysis. And she said, he doesn't want to go on dialysis. And he said, well, he's got to go right now. And so, and then he left for Australia. So here I'm dealing with her. She calls to talk to, to Ron and Ron said, uh, no, <laughs> not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So she asked to talk to me and she knew about the history with, with shock. And I had told her, you know, if, you know, save my husband. I don't want to go through this again. And so we talked and she said, you know what, if he'll just come down to the emergency room because his labs were so good, chances are this is just a mistake in the labs. So let's have him come to the ER where he can get the, the labs done right away and and we can tell so i took him down there took him in we explained to him all the whole thing about not going on dialysis and everything and the next thing we knew they're taking him into a room to put in a a a line so that they could start him on dialysis Mm. and both of us were (laughs) saying stop that and they got him into the the it's like an operating room that they take you in to put this this line in and ron was talking to the nurse and said this is not what i want and she says well it's it's your life it's your body it's your decision if you don't want it we won't do it and the doctor came in and they both explained the same thing to him and the doctor was beside himself can't do that you would you'll die don't you understand you're just going to die if you don't have this and finally, Ron gave into him with the understanding that it didn't have to stay that way, that we would do it, you know, do, do a dialysis session and then talk. Well, that didn't happen. He was on dialysis from then on. Oh, so no. when, because once you get on it, you're on it. And at first it was great because he felt so much better. He hadn't been able to play golf. He didn't have any energy and he was going out and playing golf in between dialysis sessions and he was happy and he was doing really well. And they uh, told him about peritoneal dialysis, which is something that you can do at home at night while you're asleep. And that way you don't have to go down to the dialysis center uh, three times a week for, for hours at a time. 
and so theoretically live a more normal life. A lot of people work when they're on peritoneal dialysis because they, they can go to work and come home and they lead a pretty normal life. And he thought, well, that sounds okay. That, that doesn't sound like the dialysis I'm familiar with. So they put him on that. Long story, he had one complication after another that they swore didn't have anything to do with the dialysis, but it was the only thing that could have been causing it. And they were horrible complications that lasted for about six months. And finally, he got to the point where he was uh, having it's probably more information than you want to know, but having diarrhea constantly. So we went down to the emergency room to see if they could stop it, and they couldn't. And they admitted him to the hospital, put him in a, in a private room, and I stayed with him for a week in the hospital because the nurses couldn't get in there fast enough. Uh, and the, the doctor was going, well, I don't know what the big deal is. He just has diarrhea. I said he had diarrhea 35 times in the last 24 hours, and he's not eating or drinking anything. I said, and the doctor said, that couldn't possibly be true. And I said, I'm writing it down. And they said, well, the nurses said he only went. But I said, those are the times the nurses came in to clean him up. They can't get here fast enough. Mm -hmm. So finally, after a week there, Ron said to the doctor, what are you going to do? And the doctor said, I don't know. <laughs> and then Ron said, then I'm going home. And he said, well, if you're going home, you're going to go against medical advice because we have to find out what's wrong so we can solve it. And Ron said, okay, so what are you going to do? And he answered again, I don't know. And he said, okay, I'm going home. So I called a friend of mine who was a, a hospice nurse that we had really gotten to know uh, through this friend of mine that moved here with us. Uh, and he said, he's coming home without, uh, against medical advice. He's, I'm going to need help. And so between and it was a late Friday afternoon between the time I called her and when we got home she had already gotten a hospital bed here at the house she had arranged and she she was a hospice nurse she arranged for the hospice doctor even though he wasn't going on hospice because he with everything that was happening he wasn't admitting that he was he was actually dying yet uh he didn't want to go on hospice but because the hospice doctor was a friend of this hospice nurse she came out and prescribed the medications for him he needed because the doctor at the hospital refused to send him home with any prescriptions because he was going home against medical advice. Mm -hmm. But he needed medications, especially pain medications, because he was in bad shape. So we came home and we started calling everybody. We called friends and family and told everybody that this was probably it. And so people started coming from the mainland. Our house was full of people. The houses are, of our friends around us had, had people in them. Um, on That was Friday night. Monday morning, he told me, he goes, you know, just, just let them know I, I need to go on hospice now. And so I said, okay. And that changed everything. Everything was really ease and grace. And it was once he got home, it was ease and grace. But with hospice mm -hmm. on top of it, it was it was really nice. He was able to either visit in person face to face with all these people who came to visit him everybody he knew on the island and everybody who could get here by plane it was like a party here for a week mm -hmm. his daughter was here uh we had been practicing vegans for a, a few years because he felt that that was going to help his health that would keep him the healthiest he could be and i said is there anything you want to eat and he says yes i want some barbecue ribs 
Oh, boy. So, <laughs> Sheena called a friend of his who was an expert at ribs, and we had the barbecue going in the backyard and ribs. And uh, another friend that came took care of all the food for the week of making sure that everybody who was staying here was fed. Uh, we had the, the Robin, the, the hospice nurse, had people come over to sing for him, to uh, do all these things. It 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 was beautiful, and we were with him kind of a, around the clock. When when nobody else was in the room with him at night, I I would either sleep with him, you know, right next to him in the hospital bed until that was too uncomfortable for him, and I pulled all the couch cushions out and laid him right next to his bed and stayed there with him. But it was so cool because he said anything he wanted to say to everybody he wanted to say it to uh, using FaceTime on his phone. And he he finally got to the point, he goes, you know, I've I've talked to everybody. Um, Everybody knows I love them. Everybody knows the impact they've had on my life. Uh, I'm grateful for the life. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for everything. And um, that was it. He he went to sleep shortly after he told me that and slept for a, about a about a day. And then he just very peacefully uh, stopped breathing. Mm. And I was there with him. And so are, sorry. So were all the friends that he had that were there. And it, it really was beautiful. They, uh, I just went in the other room after he transitioned because I just, I had, I felt like I, I had, we had done all we needed to do together and I didn't need to be in that room at that time. And, and a friend came into my room with me. Um, they went ahead and the hospice people did a beautiful ceremony with a lavender bath and dressing him and his friends who were there were able to help with that. And it, they, they were all so touched. Uh, it was, it was just beautiful. It was, it was how he wanted to go. He was able to, to choose everything he, he chose when he went on hospice. He didn't get to choose the initial dialysis thing, but he did get to choose everything else and did get to say everything he needed to say to everybody he wanted to say something to. And some of them were people he hadn't talked to in years and we were able to, to track them down. For instance, one uh, person he really wanted to talk to was uh, somebody who he had been married to her mother and he had uh, officially adopted her at the time. And then after the divorce, they, she was technically, I guess, officially adopted, but they weren't in each other's lives anymore. But they had, over the years, stayed in touch on the phone every once in a while, and they obviously loved each other, but I'd, I'd never even met her. Uh, and he said, I, I really, I need to talk to her. And that was kind of a challenge to track her down and find her. Turned out she was in Greece on vacation with her husband and her, her two stepchildren. But we got a hold of them, and she was she was so thrilled that we called, and we were able to do it with FaceTime. So he was actually able to meet her husband, and meet her stepchildren. And she goes, "I want you to all at least get to meet and talk to this man who had such a powerful influence in my life." It was beautiful. 
Oh, I just feel the beauty of all of it. I'm so glad we circled back around and you shared these beautiful stories and you shared the contrast between Jacques' um, experience and what you learned from it. Um, and, you know, we can't plan the timing of our deaths. Yeah. This was sudden, you know, Jacques, Jacques was a different path, but um, yeah, for Ron to be able to have so much input and, and then I just love it when I hear stories of these gathering these people in your house, it feels like we're stepping back in time a bit. Um, yes. And maybe, you know, I'm not sure we don't, you know, I don't know from from I have Oklahoma beginnings too, Dust Bowl Oklahoma beginnings. And from what my mother would describe, um, those were the type of things that would happen back in those original days. And um, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's a beautiful, You're beautiful welcome. ending. Mm. Well, Emily, thank you for being with us today. And Thank you for sharing your heartfelt, beautiful loves of your life and your stories with us and also about your work. And it would be helpful. We will have it in the program notes for sure. The links where people can look at that on as you're listening to your podcast, you can go to your program notes. But if somebody right now wants to just find you very quickly, Emily, where would they go? They can. Um, I have a website that is loving and living your way through grief.com. Uh, they can go on Facebook to Reclaiming Your Joy After Loss, a uh, private group, and ask to join that, or ask to join Writing Through Your Grief with Emily, another private Facebook group. Or my email is emily at loving and living your way through grief.com. Beautiful. Thank you again, Emily, for being with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.